John advised them, Prohibition is here, and it's a new world with big opportunities for people with the guts to grab hold and go for it. But while in the army, he not only learned how to live like a punk in the mud and learned to watch friends die, but also how to kill. And the biggest lesson of all, there were people sitting on the top of the hill and there were many more people living in the mud. And he said the punks in the mud were controlled by the people on the hill and they were told how to live and how to die and even when to die. He told Peter that he was going to climb that hill and anybody that got in his way was going to find themselves down in the mud with the rest of the punks where he had been. And he said he was going to get high enough so that no one would ever be able to tell him how to live and when to die. Welcome back to Legacy. I'm Helena Drago. Today, my husband Ty Drago and I will be talking about the villain's path. In case you couldn't tell by the dark, foreboding music, the brief opening narrated by Tony Drago introduces John, the brother to our hero Peter, at the point when he's about to take a dark turn. Today we are going to have a conversation that outlines how to create a good villain in your story, one that doesn't come off as a comic book personality. The antagonist is just as important, if not more important, than your protagonist. He or she needs to be authentic, plausible, and all too real. Have you ever noticed that in some stories, like a thriller, that the story is only as good as its villain? Absolutely. Any story is only as good as its villain. <laughs> Crows agree. I'm just thinking of, for example, David Tennant and Jessica Jones. What was that villain's name? Kilgrave. Kilgrave, who I think of as a perfect example of a great villain best on TV. And he could have gone very much comic book because it is a comic book, but he wasn't. He was scary as a villain. And what is it that made him so, what did he do that was so interesting that made him such a good villain? I don't know what it is. What made him a good villain in my mind was that later on you start learning how and why he became what he was. I mean, this was a little boy who was experimented on by his parents. Ah. I mean, imagine the betrayal there. His parents were scientists who were working on viral therapies of the mind and used him as a guinea pig. What about parents? Well, he ends up killing them both. When you're creating a villain, the first thing you need to look at is the type of story you're writing. I'm writing a saga that's about characters that are supposed to be as close to real people as I can make them. So my villain needs to be a real person, he needs to be layered, he needs to have dimensions. You need to have an explanation as to why he ends up going down this darker path. Peter is the protagonist. 
John is the antagonist. John is the antagonist in the story for one reason and one reason only, in that he gets in the way of Peter's goal. That's what makes him the antagonist. Peter wants to become an American. John becomes, by circumstance and motivation, an obstacle to Peter achieving that goal. That's what makes him the villain of the piece. There's a story your dad talks about where John is actually quite villainous. Oh, yes. In fact, let's play that right now. Don Harold, an ABC detective, met Harry Sidney and said, I just got a good tip from an informant that the Donatelli brothers had set up shop. I think we ought to check out the operation. And Harry smiled and said, it sounds good to me. And off they went. They marched in on John and Angelo while they were loading the trucks and getting ready to make their deliveries. They produced their badges and told them that they were under arrest, but they were willing to make a deal. He said, you have two trucks you're going to lose, plus all of your stock, and you'll end up in jail. That would be a big loss. We're willing to settle for 2500 He said, where are we going to come up with that kind of money? They said, between the three of you, you should be able to raise that kind of money. It's a lot better than going to jail. And John said, look, we're willing to do anything that's fair and reasonable, but we'd never be able to come up with this kind of money. And he tried to make a reasonable settlement, but they were adamant. And Don Harold said, be grateful for not asking for more. And John said, We'd like to have your permission and make a couple of rounds to raise the money that we need to satisfy you people. The two ABC men relaxed a bit and said, sure. John said, I'm going into the office to get a drink. Do you want to come with me? And they said, yes, let's all go together. And the four of them, counting Angelo, went back into the office. As soon as they entered the office, John whipped out a gun and said, if you breathe, you're dead. John sent Angelo get their weapons, and John put a noose around each one's neck, then extended that line around their ankles so that any struggle would simply strangle them. He then got on the phone to a business acquaintance, and John said, I have a couple of guests that I'd like to bring over. When do you think you could be ready for it? And the man said, in less than two hours. And John said, have everything prepared, you'll be there. By this time, the two men were panicking, and John went behind them and, and proceeded to beat them over the head into unconsciousness. He turned to Angelo and said, bring the car to the back of the building. And he did, and the two of them carried each body to the doorway, then threw them in the trunk. John said to Angelo, and go ahead and make your delivery. I can handle it from here. And he drove off with the two men. He drove into a farm area and pulled up next to a barn. The farmer came out, and the man said, I'll get in the car and take you to the spot. And they drove out a dirt road alongside the farm, and they stopped, and there was already a hole dug. And they opened the trunk, and they proceeded to throw the two bodies into the hole. And the farmer said, they're still alive. And John said, does it make any difference? And proceeded to fill up the hole. That 
story has John being cold and ruthless. He buries people alive. That's unnecessarily villainous. From a technical writing standpoint, it is not those acts that make John the villain of the story, even though the acts are horrendous. What makes John the villain of the story is the fact that those acts and the motivation behind it and his relationship with Peter get in the way of Peter's goal. Peter will find that act when he learns of it to be horrific and it will cause more problems between this brother that he loves and the life he's trying to build as an American. When you're creating a villain in a story like this, you need to introduce them before they're villains. Introduce them to us as people. Flawed as anybody else. Relatable, likable to a point. Genuine human beings. Just as the hero's journey begins with some pivotal moment in their lives. The villain's path in this kind of a story begins with a pivotal moment. And that moment sends them, instead of on an upward climb, on a downward spiral. John did not start out a sociopath. John starts out in Sicily, a year and change younger than Peter. He doesn't quite have Peter's work ethic. He's smart and he tries to weasel out of things. But then something happens in Sicily. I won't reveal what, but it's quite terrible. And it puts John in a terrible position where he has to find a way to deal with a guilt that a 16-year-old boy should never have to deal with. So he brings that guilt to America. And the way he deals with it is by hardening and by saying, this is the way the world is, and I will not allow the world to defeat me. The important thing to remember is that your villain, your antagonist, like every other character in your book, is supposed to be human. You're manufacturing people. You want that person to have things about them that are not entirely evil, so that they remain to some degree relatable. What I'm trying to do is create a villain that my readers will re relate to and grieve for as he slips further and further into darkness. I want them saying, oh no, oh no, don't do that, John. Oh no, don't do that, John. It's almost like you gotta be a psychologist. You have to understand how people react and operate. Yeah, you gotta be able to empathize. You gotta be able to imagine yourself in these people's shoes and try not to do things the way you do them, try to do things the way they do them. No, no, I mean, if you have a guy who was damaged, like this, apparently John was. Very damaged. During his teenage years and then you have another guy who he may have been equally damaged but for some reason he is more morally centered we really need to understand why john the villain is going down its dark path and it's really deeply psychological it is it is and you have to understand that you don't necessarily have to convey it but you do have to understand it yourself it's another piece of that research you don't necessarily need to hit your reader over the head with the psychology behind everything your, your hero or villain does. No, you don't. But you need to understand the psychology. You do. That lends authenticity. It lends relatability to the characters. It allows you to make them more alive. I asked Ty how a writer might depict her villains in different genres, like a thriller or a mystery. Here's what he had to say. 
in a thriller story where you're chasing a serial killer, the serial killer can be a monster. And nothing is known about the villain in a thriller story as an individual until the very end. Up until then, you only know them through their acts, which are horrendous. So you have a very good, a very easy way to establish a dichotomy between good and evil. In a thriller story where you have, you know, an Alex Cross who's trying to find a serial killer, the serial killer is leaving a string of bodies. Every once in a while, James Patterson will take us into the serial killer's head. But for the most part, he and Alex Cross do not cross paths, so to speak, until the very end. In a murder mystery, we don't know who the killer is. So we don't know who the villain is until the very end. And by then we know everybody. We know all the suspects and you usually know them quite well so that you understand at least the motivations behind them. So we have some appreciation as to why this person did what they did. So do you think getting a peek inside the villain's head helps the story, helps give some excitement? It's a very good device to use in a thriller. That can be very, very exciting. I've seen it done in mysteries, too, from time to time, where one person in the room will be thinking, oh, no, I've got to kill him, too, now. But this builds suspense. It's a device that builds suspense. Now, romances are tricky, because there are villains in romances. Who? Um, very often, it's the other member of a love triangle. You know, you'll read a lot of romances where someone's in a bad relationship, and they meet the girl of their dreams. So now they're struggling with this difficult, dysfunctional person that they're involved with while they're dealing with the guilt of reaching out to this person that they really do care about. Villainy is relative to the type of story you're writing. As with the hero's journey, there are bumps rising up the sloping bell curve. And each bump represents a, a rise in the, in the conflict, rise in the tension, until you get to the moment of climax when the hero and the villain intersect. And that moment right there is where the, where the story is decided. The hero's journey and the villain's path bring them both to the same spot, ultimately. Their pace may be different, their, their situations may be different, but they will meet right there. So the story needs to intertwine the hero's journey and the villain's path. So is there a technique for meshing those two stories? Um, there's many of them, and it depends on the type of story you're writing. In this one, it's actually made fairly easy for me because they're brothers and they end up in business together. And while they have very different moral codes, they, they bump heads a lot, but at the same time they love one another. John never stops loving Peter. Peter never stops loving John throughout the entire book. They are moving for a good portion of the book, more or less in tandem, as their relationship is advancing through these various conflicts they have to deal with. One character comes into a scene with one set of goals and one attitude toward events. You have the other character come in with a different set of goals, or maybe the same set of goals, but a different attitude toward how those goals should be met. And then you have them interact. And the tension builds from that. But in other types of stories, the villain can take a very different path. In some types of stories, the villain lives their own life, and the, and the hero lives their own life, and they only meet at the pivotal moment. That's the first time they rely on each other. Robert McCammon, some, I guess must be 30 years ago, maybe longer, wrote this book called Mystery Walk, in which there are two main characters. One is a poor young man who discovers he has the ability to talk to the dead. And the other is a preacher's son who discovers he has the ability to heal people. Interestingly enough, the one who can talk to the dead is the protagonist, and the one who can heal people is the antagonist. They live very separate lives. 
they do not have any contact. They have no knowledge of one another through 80% of the book. It's only toward the very end that they come together and conflict. That was a very, very neat piece of storytelling on McCammon's part because he led us to reach characters' lives and had us feeling for each and every one of them, even as we saw this one young man slip further and further into darkness and this one other young man rise further and further into light. So that's a good example. Two separate narrative arcs. A chapter going this way, a chapter going that way. And you just bounce back and forth between the two characters. Stephen King does it all the time. He did it in The Stand, for example, where he had a, a series of characters who did not come together until the very end. Ty continued our conversation, pointing out that the villain, or the antagonist, is created to act as a foil for the protagonist. And ultimately, the hero and the villain must meet the climax of your story, where all things are resolved. Here's Ty. So the villain's path. We've talked about how it moves in a certain way like the hero's path does. Like the opposite side of the same coin. Light and dark, yin and yang. But it's important to understand that that changes at the climax. At the climax, where the hero and the villain, the protagonist and the antagonist, to be more precise, finally conflict. The writer has a decision to make. Only one of them can prevail. If neither one of them prevails or neither one of them loses, the story isn't over. So at that point, someone has to have a reversal of fortune. Either the hero falls and the villain succeeds or the other way around. When you get to that point, the hero has to make the final decision, this is what my story is. In most of the, most of the time, depending on the type of story you're writing, it's a fairly easy decision to make. You're writing a murder mystery, either the detective solves it or he doesn't. And if he doesn't, what the heck kind of murder mystery did you just write? <laughs> Don't you agree that the better the villain, the better the story? Think of the best villain you have read in a book. What made him or her so special? To me, the antagonist is especially effective and disturbing when he is real. Even if the villain is supernatural and couldn't possibly be real. As you create your villain, write him as a textured character. Reveal to your reader what he likes and dislikes. Let us know how he started on his villainous path, so your reader can see him as human, even if he isn't. Join us in two weeks' time when Ty will be talking about the mechanics of writing. He will be discussing how to lay out certain scenes to create suspense or action, how to lay out exposition without sounding preachy, how to set a mood without falling back on hackneyed phrases like it was a dark and stormy night. I hope you'll join us. And as always, thanks for listening. Legacy was written and produced by Ty and Helena Drago. The music you're listening to is called Still Standing by Anno Domini Beats, found on YouTube's library.